The sermon text for this morning is from Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. It can be found on page 946 in the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 10, 5 through 13. We'll begin reading in Romans 9 with verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The famous Mohandas Gandhi lived from 1869 to 1948. He was the heart and soul of the movement for independence in India. He used, as you know, nonviolent resistance to fuel that independence movement. Gandhi fought for the poor, for the untouchables, and for the rights of women. He was often imprisoned by the authorities for his protests, but he continued to advocate nonviolence and the speaking of the truth. He lived modestly and simply, not richly. He followed a vegetarian diet. He often fasted for long periods of time abstaining from food to devote himself to truth and what was righteous and good. He, he would fast to protest the wrongs that were done for those who were innocent. On January 30th, 1948, he was assassinated. And he's been viewed since then as a martyr. We can certainly say, when we look at Gandhi's life, here was an example of virtue 
of, of, uh, of a desire to live for what was good and true and right in so many ways. He certainly cared about the oppressed and the rights of the poor. Some think that there was ever a Christian, Gandhi was a Christian. Some, some people call Gandhi a Christian because he did so much good. They stand in awe of him because of his program for social justice, his devotion to goodness and truth. But Gandhi never called himself a Christian, interestingly enough. In fact, this is what Gandhi said about Jesus. He saw Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world. But he said, my heart cannot accept that there was anything mysterious or miraculous in his death. Gandhi said, the message of Jesus, as I understand it, is contained in the Sermon on the Mount. If then I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount and my own interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, oh yes, in that sense, oh yes, I'm a Christian. In other words, Gandhi would say, I'm a Christian if you define a Christian as following the ethic of Jesus. He believed what it means to be a Christian, like many people in our society, hopefully very few of us in this church, he believed what it means to be a Christian is to be a good person to follow the ethic of Jesus, to live like Jesus. But we will see today in our text that the New Testament contradicts that definition of what it means to be a Christian. If we follow the Apostle Paul here, we will say that Gandhi did not live under the favor of God, but under the wrath of God. You know, I'm I'm not picking on Gandhi to attack him personally. But I select him because he's an example of what? Moral virtue in our society and in our history. In the 1980s, there was a movie about Gandhi that celebrated him. And there was an article in Christianity Today praising him in many respects. And, of course, in many respects, he is to be praised. But that's not the same thing as saying that he's a believer in Jesus Christ. So I I want to ask three questions of this text today. And the first I want to ask is, what is the difference between righteousness based on law and righteousness based on faith? How do we distinguish those two? Righteousness based on law and righteousness based on faith. Second, what does this text teach us about the nature of faith? What, what is faith after all? What do we learn from these verses about what faith is? And third, Is this salvation, which is discussed in this text, is this salvation available for everyone? So let's look at the first question. What is the difference between righteousness based on law and righteousness based on faith? And the righteousness based on law is explained for us immediately in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Paul's quoting from Leviticus chapter 
18, verse 5 here. By the way, he quotes that as well in Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. That that verse says that those who do the commandments will live by them. I think that means that if you keep the commandments of the law, if you do what the commandments say, then you'll have eternal life. If someone does all the commandments, then they will enjoy the life of the age to come. Now, now this is very important. Paul does not disagree with that. Paul agrees. If you keep all the commands, then you will live by doing those commands. He doesn't say that even if you keep the commands, you'll be damned anyway. No, he says if you keep the commands, you'll live by virtue of your obedience. But that's the problem, isn't it? No one, no one keeps all the commands. Why does not, why doesn't the law save? Because no one does keep the commands. No one can keep the commands. No matter how good that person is, no matter how virtuous they are, no matter if the person is Gandhi or whoever you think is a person of moral virtue, no one meets that standard. So righteousness by the law is a false path. And Paul contrasts it with righteousness by faith. We all fall short of righteousness by law, but righteousness by faith is different. How is it different? We see it in verse 6 and 7 and following. Righteousness by faith looks to what God does. Not to what we do, but what God does. Verse 6, we can't bring Christ down from heaven to earth. We can't bring Christ down to live the perfect life and to be sacrificed on the cross for our sins. That's something that God does. That's not something we do. Or verse 7, we can't raise Christ from the dead. We can't give life to those who are in the grave. That's what God does. God gives life to the dead. God is the one who raised Christ from the dead. Faith Faith looks away from ourselves to what God does. Faith looks to the God who has and can do the impossible. The God who raised Christ from the dead can grant life to sinners. This is one of my favorite truths in the scriptures. God can grant spiritual life to those who have no interest in the things of God. Now, that, that might be you, but maybe it's people you're praying for. Maybe you've been praying for them for a long time, and you think, well, I'm about just to give up on that person. But God can grant an interest in spiritual things. God can turn someone's life around instantly. And we don't know when he'll choose to do that. Of course, we don't have a promise, do we, that he will do that necessarily. But he can do that. He grants life. He, he raises people from the dead. He can do the impossible. He can help you love a person who hates you and mistreats you. He can give you that spiritual power. He can do the impossible thing. He can empower you to forgive a person who has deeply injured you. That's, that's a miraculous work, isn't it? If you, if you can forgive someone who's deeply injured you 
That's a work of the resurrecting God. He can strengthen you to care for your children when you're exhausted. He can give you strength in difficult times. He can give you grace to bear with the pressures of everyday life. He can help you love your husband or your wife, even if they're hard and difficult to love. He could give you wisdom so that you know when to speak and you know when to be silent. But, but back, back to the text. Let's look back at the text. Righteousness based on faith doesn't focus on what we do, but on what God has done in Jesus Christ. Faith looks away from ourselves. Faith, faith doesn't concentrate on our performance. Faith doesn't give the glory to someone like Gandhi or any human being. It looks to what God has done in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. Now, now it's quite interesting, isn't it? In verse 5, Paul quotes the Old Testament and sees there righteousness by law. And in verse 6, he quotes the Old Testament and sees righteousness by faith. When he introduces the Old Testament quotation in verse 6, look at this carefully, he begins it with the words, do not say in your heart. Now, those words, do not say in your heart, come from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. And if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, there the Lord is promising Israel that they will enter the land of promise. But I want, I want to read Deuteronomy 9, 4, and 5. He's telling them why they will enter the land of promise. And even though Paul quotes a very small part of this text in Deuteronomy 9, I think you'll see that it fits perfectly with the theme of righteousness by faith instead of righteousness by works. I think you'll find this citation very illuminating. So I'm going to read Deuteronomy 9, 4, and 5. It begins, do not say in your heart. That's, that's the part Paul quotes, right? Do not say in your heart. After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that's the other nations that are kicked out of the land when Israel enters the land, do not say it is because it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So do you see the significance of this citation? After Paul says in verse 5 that righteousness of law demands human performance, he quotes the first part of Deuteronomy in verse 6. And he says, you're not entering the land because of your righteousness. You're entering the land because of their wickedness and because of the promise that God gave to your fathers. You're entering the land because of the grace of God, because of the covenant he made, because God is faithful to his covenant promises. Saving faith recognizes then that our righteousness does not come from ourselves. Saving faith recognizes that our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Faith believes that it is God who saves us, 
and not our own works. So now, now that part's easy. It, it, I think it's illuminating and helpful. But the next thing we see, and I thought of not covering this with you, but I, but I just think it's necessary. The next part's a little more difficult because Paul goes on the quote, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, after that initial quotation, right? Are you with me? A little bit more difficult today, what we're following, but I think we ought to look at this. After he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, he quotes Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14 in Romans 10, 6 through 8. He explains those verses very clearly, right? Very simply in terms of righteousness by faith. Clear enough. But when we read Deuteronomy, it seems like the verses are not talking about righteousness by faith, but about obeying the law. So I want to read those verses. So you hear them, and so we see, so we see what's going on, and, and, and can we explain what Paul's doing here in contrasting righteousness by law and righteousness by faith and using these verses from Deuteronomy? But let's hear the verses. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. For this commandment, this is Moses speaking, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Moses seems to be saying that the law is not too hard to obey and to do. He repeats the idea in every verse. You can do it. Why does Paul say we can't do the law when Moses seems to say we can? And why does Paul say these verses are about faith when it seems like Moses says they're about keeping the law? That's the problem. You see it? I think the best answer is to notice. So hang with me a little bit. I think the best answer is to notice where these verses are in Deuteronomy. So I want to make two points. In chapters 26 through 29 of Deuteronomy, we see there that Israel is called upon to obey the law. And they're told if they obey the law, they'll be blessing. If they disobey the law, they'll be a curse. If you read those chapters, I encourage you to read them sometime if you haven't. But if you read those chapters, Moses makes it very clear. They will not obey the law. Moses makes it very clear they won't and they can't obey the law. Just read the chapters. That's not what he says in chapter 30, it seems, right? He makes it very clear they won't obey the law, they can't obey the law, that they will go into exile. And indeed, that's what happened. Many years later, 722 B.C., The northern kingdom went into exile at the hand of the Assyrians. 586 B.C., the southern kingdom at the hand of the Babylonians. They won't obey the law, Moses says. You can't obey the law. And they didn't. When we come to chapter 30, 
Moses is writing about a different time in Israel's history. When they're in exile. And he says, the Lord will come and meet you. When you cry out to him. And what will we do? Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. He will circumcise your heart. So that you obey the Lord. After you've sinned, the Lord will do a miraculous work in you and will change you and transform you. Jeremiah picks up this promise in Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant. God will write the law on your heart, he says, and then you will keep his statutes. That's a supernatural work of God. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. After Israel's in exile, after Israel's sins, the Spirit will come. And He'll give a desire to keep God's statutes. So that Israel will obey. So what's the difference between these two? Deuteronomy 30 is talking about a supernatural work of God after Israel has sinned in which the Spirit is given to them and the law is put on their heart and then they want to obey God. It's a, it's a different period in the history of salvation. It's talking about the new covenant. It's not an obedience of works. It's an obedience of the Spirit. Okay, I, I, th- I think that's right, but I, I don't think that's enough, is it? Just to say that, if you're still with me. I don't think it's enough, because I keep talking about obedience. Paul talks about what? What faith? So, so, so how does Paul get, how does Paul get from obedience to faith? You, are you with me? That's, that's a tough, tough issue. Here's my answer. You cogitate upon it. Come up and tell me if you, if you think it's right. I, I, think, I think we are to look at Deuteronomy 30 from another angle as well. The obedience demanded in Deuteronomy 30 was only fulfilled and carried out by one man, and that's Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the only one who always did God's law. Jesus is the only one who fulfilled all God's statutes and prescriptions and commandments. And therefore the blessing, the blessing described in that verse is only ours if we belong to Him, if we're united to Him. Yes, there is a new obedience in our life, but to belong to God, there must be an obedient one to whom we're joined. And I think that's what these verses are all about. And it's about being joined to Jesus, being united to Him. And enjoying his righteousness. Which is another way of saying, how are we joined to Jesus? What is, what is the fundamental act that God requires of us? What does God require of us to be saved? What do these verses say over and over and over again? What, what is, what is the root Demand that God has of us, and that root demand is that we trust Him. We obey Him 
by trusting him. I think that's how Paul's reading Deuteronomy here. The call to do what God calls upon us to do is fundamentally a call to trust, to trust in Christ. Remember John chapter 6. The Jews said, we want to do the works of God. We want to do great things for God. And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So I think the call here to faith does not distort what Deuteronomy says. Paul reads this verse in light of the storyline of Deuteronomy, in light of the storyline of what Jesus has done for us. Well, that, that, was, a, that was a long answer. But I, but I think it shows that Paul is not distorting, and I think it's important to see Paul's not distorting the Old Testament here. But he's rightly interpreting it. So that brings me to my second question in this text. What is the nature of faith in these verses? What, what is faith like? And here I'd like to make two points. The, 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 really, the, the, I've really made the first point, but I want to just sharpen it a little bit. Faith looks from away from ourselves, and faith looks to Christ instead of to our own works. Faith isn't self-focused, but faith is God-focused. The amount of our faith can be small. I think Jesus teaches us we can be saved with a mustard seed of faith, the smallest seed known in that day. The amount of our faith can be small as long as the object of our faith is right. In other words, faith must have the proper content. Our faith must be, even if our faith is small, our faith must be in the truth. You are not saved if you believe in Islam. Because that's not the proper content. No matter how great your faith is, your faith may be great, but the object of your faith is wrong. You're not, you're not saved if you believe in Buddhism or Hinduism or any other way. So, so faith must be connected to the truth. Faith, faith has a doctrinal profile. Faith, faith has a content to it. Notice what verse 8 says. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. The word here is the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. One must believe to be saved that Jesus is the Christ. One must believe that Jesus died for our sins. And that his sacrifice brings forgiveness. One must believe, verse 9, that Jesus is Lord. And confess that with one's mouth. One must believe in the supremacy and deity of Jesus to be saved. One must believe that he's conquered death. We need to confess certain things to be saved. We have a confession of faith that we acknowledge to be saved. We believe in certain truths with our mind. So faith, faith isn't just experiential, is it? We're a very feeling-oriented culture. We so focus on how we feel, but faith is in truth. Truth is fundamental and primary. That's a call to us, isn't it? Don't rely on your feelings. 
Our feelings are so variable, aren't they? They go up and down. You may not have felt like coming to church today. You may not feel like reading your Bible. You may not feel like loving your family and so forth and so on. But our feelings are so variable. And you may not be feeling much about uh, meeting in small groups with other believers. But our faith is in truth. The beauty and glory of the truth of the gospel. You can have all the faith in the world. But if it's, in the faith, if it's faith in the wrong thing, your faith will let you down. You, you can have faith. This is true in ordinary life, right? You, you can believe the key to happiness in my life is to get married. And if I get married, or, what, or just fill in the blank, the key to happiness is. But if, if, that, if that proposition is wrong, you're going to be frustrated. What, what, what false gospel out there is probably the most popular one in, in, throughout the world that many Christians believe? The false gospel is God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. If we, if we go all over the world, that false gospel is enormously popular. But it's, it's not true, is it? God doesn't promise that. So your faith must be in the right object. You must believe in truth. Second, second point about faith. Your faith must be, this is the other side of it, isn't it? Your faith must be authentic. Your faith must be real. Your faith must be genuine. Verse, verses 9 and 10 say you must believe in your heart to be saved. You must believe in your heart to be justified, to be right with God. The heart stands for the whole person. Your mind, your will, and emotions, and affections. It isn't enough to be saved to simply believe in your head, Jesus is Lord. That's crucial. It's not enough. True belief embraces the whole person. We could use the word trust or to lean upon him. We trust certain people, don't we? We lean upon them. I trust Diane. And, and I lean upon her. I think, I think of the history of this church. I trust, I mean, I trust Sean Wright with anything. You know, I've known him for a long time. So I, you know, I can lean upon him. That faith has an experiential component where we rest upon God. We, we commit ourselves to God. Clifton's statement of faith here is really helpful. Clifton's statement of faith has both that doctrinal and experiential component. I'm going to read part of it to you. Here's what it says. Saving faith is the belief on God's authority of whatever is revealed in his word concerning Christ, accepting and resting upon him alone for justification and eternal life. Did you see both dimensions? Saving faith believes what's revealed in his word. About Christ. There's, there's the truth dimension. It rests on the truth revealed to us in Scripture. But there's also the experiential component. It accepts and rests on Him alone for justification and eternal life. I, I think that statement captures so well what Paul is saying here. Faith must be in the truth and it must, must be wholehearted. It can still be as a mustard seed, right? Those two aren't contradictory. must be genuine, but not perfect. 
So we have to add that in as well. But it still must be genuine. It's not just mere mental agreement. So what does this mean? I think one of the things it means is that you must continue to be renewed in the truth. You you must be growing in your knowledge of the truth as a Christian. Of course, you need to know the knowledge of the truth to be saved. But are you growing in your knowledge of the truth? Are you pursuing the truth? Are you reading the scriptures? Are you learning more in the scriptures? Or, or are you being confirmed in the truth? And do you have a joy in the truth? Can you explain to people what justification is? If you can't, you can grow there, right? Can you explain, not fully, but can you articulate what we believe about the doctrine of the Trinity? Are you growing and you're growing in the knowledge of, of the truth? But secondly, doctrine without trust in God is worthless. So are you asking God to strengthen you each day? Are you depending upon him? When anxiety and fear strikes, do you go to him for strength? So many uncertainties and difficulties bedevil our lives, and we're called upon to go to him every day and to trust in him, to rest on him, to lean upon him, to remember that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And we can just say, I think we can see as a nation, as a people, we're at a crossroads, I think, and who knows what will happen in the future. Whatever happens, we're called upon to rest in God, aren't we? To trust in Him and lean upon Him. You should all be involved. I think you should all vote in a political year. But that's not where we finally place our confidence. It's important to be involved, but we place our confidence in God, don't we? The answer to our nation's problems, ultimately, it's not political. It's spiritual. That doesn't mean we ought not to be involved in the political sphere. We rest in the Lord. Well, last question, very quickly. Is salvation available for everyone? Paul quotes two Old Testament texts, Isaiah 28, verse 16 and verse 11, and Joel chapter 2, verse 32 and verse 13. Paul actually adds the word everyone to Isaiah 28, 16 and verse 11, emphasizing that all who believe in Jesus will not experience and time, shame, and humiliation. Salvation is available to every people group, every ethnic group, all around the world. Salvation is offered to all, whether Jew or Gentile. The riches, notice that word, the riches of God's kindness are there for everyone who call upon the Lord for salvation. The opportunity for all to be saved is there. But you must call upon him if you want to be saved. That's what the text emphasizes, doesn't it? God's treasures and riches are right there in front of you. But you must ask him for those treasures and riches. You must admit that you can't make it on your own. You must not be like Gandhi. What was Gandhi's problem? 
He didn't call upon Jesus to save him. He didn't believe in anything miraculous in what Jesus had done. He thought he could do it himself. He thought Jesus was a good example, but he didn't think Jesus was a savior. But what it means to be saved is to call on, the, on Jesus as a savior. And that saving riches, those saving riches are open to all who call upon him. They are there for all who call upon him as Lord and Savior. I love the words of Psalm 50, verse 13. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. That's certainly true of salvation, isn't it? Call upon me in the day of trouble in your sin and I will deliver you. But the verse goes on to say, and you shall glorify me. We get the help. God gets the glory. That's a great bargain, isn't it? God God is praised. We're strengthened. That's what he promises. God rescues us. We're thankful. We praise him. We're happy. He's glorified. That'll be our story in heaven forever, won't it? We'll praise him together. I hope you're all there. I know many of you will be. That will be our story in heaven forever. We'll praise him corporately together. But we, we have a little anticipation of that now, right? Even as we sing this last song, we, we pray if our slow souls are slumbering, we pray that our souls will arise and praise him for what he's done for us. We, we, we praise him as the one who's delivered us. We praise him as the one who is our Savior, we know that we don't look to ourselves. We can call upon Him. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that we don't save ourselves, that you, you do it. We, we, Lord, can be honest. We are weak, sinful, flawed, fallible, people. But Lord, you are a great Savior, and you deliver us and rescue us and save us from ourselves. We rejoice that Jesus is the risen Lord and that he has conquered through his death and resurrection death and sin and disease and demons. And so, Lord, we praise you as we sing now. In Jesus' name, amen.